Hello, and welcome to the second episode in the series Eclipse Across America, where we look at solar eclipses, primarily the two big solar eclipses coming to the United States in about six months and about a year. Right now, we've got on the phone Dr. Marulika Guhatha-Kurta from NASA, who has just recently come back from Australia. We asked her if she'd come back and talk about her experience, and here she is. So welcome, Lika. Thank you, Mark. So you just got back about three days ago? Yeah, I can't keep track of time. You know, time zones are all blurred, but I returned uh, Boulder time on Saturday. I, I'm looking at the date here, and it says that we I missed the eclipse by six days. So, <laughs> uh, and I know it takes about three days for you to get back. So That's I know it. you just got back. I don't want to think about it. Don't make me think about it. I apologize. I apologize. I know it's an arduous trip. Let's talk about it. First off, apparently we're able to see it because you had amazing weather. Would you tell us a little bit about the eclipse? This eclipse was actually pretty incredible, but it would be unfair to say that any other eclipses were not incredible. This was more special to me in that this was a hybrid uh, total solar eclipse and that actually means that it had nuances about it that it was a very short eclipse time-wise and what it also meant you know the Bailey's beads were hanging out there for longer and it all of this thing, and we could see the chromosphere, that was also exposed a lot more than in any other eclipses. And very clearly, the fact is that the shadow of the moon is just barely covering the solar disk, right? I mean, it's all about the shadow of the moon, where it is placed. And, and so, as a result, at least to my eyes, what I saw was not a chromospheric ring of H-alpha, which is this very pink, uh, luminous corona, but it was like a white ring. It is as if the corona itself had a ring, you know, and then, of course, there was the manifestation of the uh, coronal streamers uh, across all latitudes, basically, because we are in the rising phase of the total solar eclipse. The sky was extraordinarily bright. That was very odd, because in all my prior eclipses, you know, we would wear headlamps just to be able to see around us. That's how dark it would get. This was a bright sky eclipse. Extraordinary. I had decided not to try to go to this eclipse because I'd been to that same area back in 2013, and I found the actual journey to be really arduous. And I thought, for a one-minute eclipse, I, I just am not up to it. But when I saw all the pictures and started reading people's experiences, I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I go? So let's talk about your experience in Australia a little more. You you were there kind of overseeing a NASA experiment and having to do with a kite. People that listened to the previous podcast will have heard about that. So tell me about the experiment. I know it was successful because you had great weather for it. This, this, is, this is what risk and, you know, reward and innovation means, right? 
we were simply kind of going on a concept and going to give it a try. And so many different aspects have to come together to make this possible. You know, of course, cloud prevents us from watching the eclipse with our naked eyes. But if you're flying a kite, you need wind unless you have an artificial way of generating it. So this is the first attempt, right? So if you don't have the right wind condition, then you're not going to be able to fly a kite. So the place we chose and we were assigned after looking at not the cloud map, but the wind map was on the other side of Exmouth, you know, Learmouth Airport, which is the seashore of the Indian Ocean, right? I mean, Exmouth is this little peninsula. It has a gulf on the east, and then it is facing the Indian Ocean. And there, there was, you know, I, I have to tell you honestly, the day before the eclipse and even the morning of the eclipse, there's plenty of high clouds, plenty, early in the morning. And I, I'm just looking and you, you just never know where those clouds are going to be placed. And we also know because of the sudden drop of temperature, because the sun is blocked, that uh, local weather conditions and patterns are generated, which includes cloud formation as well as kind of changing wind direction that people have reported over time. So you are not certain, but you are determined. That's the attitude of the team. And it was extraordinary. You know, the sky cleared to perfect blue coronal sky. We launched the kite. The kite was already launching full steam ahead. And we were able to attach the payload you know, some 15, 20 minutes before the eclipse. Everything went spectacularly and attaching the payload to the kite, the real payload, we had tried like really mass payload with the same amount of mass before. But the actual payload, no. That was extraordinary. I mean, every step we took wasn't done before. So we launched that and we are watching and the eclipse happens, we eventually bring the kite down. At that point, the kite didn't want to come down. It was a lot of human work to reel the kite back in. It's heavy. At that point, we still don't know what the payload observed, what the spectrometer observed. And so this is on 20th of April. I flew back on 21st of April. So there's just like one day. And I'm sitting on the plane. And on planes, you know, you, you have actually ability to get internet. And I get this text from Dr. Shah Abal, who is the principal investigator of this team. And she writes to me, Lika, we got spectra. Getting spectra from the spectrometer means what? That the spectrometer not only was launched flew on the kite, but it acquired the sun. Acquired the sun means the sun sensor navigation worked. It was able to point at the sun and then get spectra. 
rest of the hardship of my trip. It sounds like it was great fun because flying kites is fun and capturing this data. It was. It was. It, it, it's the first attempt. You know, the team is going to look at the data now and uh, publish the results, provide uh, really calibrated data for community, whatever they have. But I, I am not going to bother them. They have a lot of work to do. And they have already done a lot of work. Your job here is done. You made the excursion out there, which is a lot of work. So tell me, the sun lately has been pretty active. Just after the eclipse, some sort of solar storm that hit the Earth just a few days ago and created these amazing auroras. So do you think that the activity of the sun made this eclipse a different experience than previous ones? Different phases of the solar cycle creates different structures of the corona because different phases of the solar cycle essentially gives rise to manifestation of different magnetic field configuration in the corona. So during solar minimum what you would see are coronal streamers that are mostly equatorial. You would see polar plumes in the north and south, which are sort of representation of, you know, open magnetic field lines. So in kind of a crude way of thinking, you can imagine the sun to be like a dipolar magnetic uh, field configuration during solar minimum. Okay. Now, during solar maximum, that changes completely. And you have streamers all over the sun at all latitudes. There's nothing that is a polar coronal hole that just represents open field lines. So we saw multiple streamers. We saw prominences because the chromosphere was also exposed because this was a hybrid solar eclipse. There were lots of prominences, filament eruptions. You, you could just see those things, basically, right? So, yes, from cycle to cycle, phases of the solar cycle represents actually the manifestation of the magnetic field through the structuring of the corona because the corona is structured by the magnetic field nothing else electrons that are either caught in closed magnetic fields or open field lines and they radiate solar radiation scattering light and that's what we capture which is the visible light so it gives us a good indication of the state of the corona so it was to me it looked like the 1991 eclipse that was the first eclipse that i saw and that was near solar max and this is in the ascending phase of solar cycle 25. so that eclipse in 1991 was that the seven minute seven and a half minute eclipse yes it's called the mother of all eclipses that i would have seen in my lifetime and I thought that that eclipse was so short because I absolutely had no idea. And now, so you think this one was similar to one that was 62 seconds long that you just saw? So ours was even less than that. It was like whatever, 57, 58 seconds. You know, when you kind of get comfortable watching eclipses, you can see a lot in one minute. Let me tell you that. I was very impressed with all the things I could absorb in this one minute. You know, when, when I see eclipses, I'm very interested in how long the duration is going to be. But something about it, it just kind of time stops and you witness it and 
you have this experience and it has a lot of different kind of meanings to you and has effects. And then when it ends, the, the time starts up again. So during totality, it's you know, like time stops. You, you, you are right. It's, it's like, I think I stopped breathing. I, I never actually measured it, but it is that awe-inspiring feeling. You know, it's, it's a gasp, right? Stop breathing. I thought about putting heart rate monitors onto people so that I could see if their heart rates increased and checking their breathing would be fun because it definitely has an effect on people. I know it has on me. Oh, it does on me too. So I was going to ask you to give a personal expression about it. I've asked many people and we all say sort of the same thing. Like it's amazing and we can't believe it. It just looks beautiful. And it's really hard to capture with our language what this does to witness that little time stop during totality is there anything you can bring to the conversation that might bring that forward or am i just it's just going to be the same i don't know if i could kind of create a haiku on the spot that's what i would do but i'm not going to be able to when you ask the question you know when you stop breathing when you gas in awe at something like that it is to me it is kind of like meditation you, you are transported to some other place. No, nothing else around you seems to matter, whatever the time is. That is the kind of um, sense it leaves me with. And it very quickly disappears when that moment surpasses. And I think it is our focus, right? It's that intense focus that we place on it. And perhaps we can do it in the way we do meditation and other things. But I'm not a very good meditator, I will acknowledge. But I think eclipses come close to taking me to that spot. You know, when you have a stopwatch and you measure something, so like it's it's not going, and then you push it to measure the thing. And then when the thing's over, you push it again and you see how long it was. I'm kind of now thinking eclipses work in the reverse. Like the clock is going, and then when you push it during totality, time stops, and then it starts back up. And it doesn't matter if it's 57 seconds or seven and a half minutes. It's the same sort of out of, I don't want to say out of body experience, but sort of. It's, 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 it's something. I would say just focus on the eclipse and give it your all. Well, with that in mind, let's talk about the future. So we have some eclipses coming to America. One of them is an annular eclipse, which is kind of in between a hybrid and a total. It's a rare bird. And then on April 8th in 2024, which is just under a year now, is a total eclipse. And that one comes up through Texas kind of cuts a big arc across America and goes up through the most heavily populated parts of America. And there'll be tens of millions of people in the path that we want to see this eclipse and have this kind of experience. So Eclipse Across America was set up seven years ago to promote the 2017 eclipse, which did the same thing from the West Coast to the East Coast. It didn't have the same population density, but this time it does. So we are going to try to maximize this experience for people. What are your plans for this coming up? So many plans, so little time. <laughs> so you are absolutely right. 2017, actually, I, you know, I was a lead scientist for Eclipse, uh, the 2017 total solar eclipse from NASA. And I asked myself the question, I was given this job, oh, you're going to do this. And I asked myself the question, 
I mean, what, what does it mean to be kind of a lead scientist for a total solar eclipse? You know, the eclipse will happen when it happens. We have no control whatsoever. So the whole concept was to figure out, you know, how do we really galvanize people to see this? Because we know what happens when we see an event like this. Uh, but also to do innovative science, just like we did, you know, during the Australian eclipse. It, it was quite extraordinary. 2017 will still be quite an extraordinary moment in my life, sort of going from coast to coast, following the track of the eclipse, kind of creating all the visuals we created, looking at the moon in that great detail, you know, to create essentially the shadow maps to such an accuracy. But what you just say it is that 2017 eclipse, as it went from West Coast to East Coast, it went through a lot of a vast space in America that was in habited, right? There weren't enough people. So the population density wasn't as high across the path of totality. But this upcoming eclipse next year on 8th of April, I think by some accounts will bring a order of magnitude of five times more people because it is closer to the East Coast. And I am really excited about that that many more people will be able to travel to the path of totality to see the eclipse. And NASA is, um, I guess, slightly better prepared in terms of having done the coast-to-coast -coast eclipse. But, you know, transportation and everything else, those are going to be major challenges, I'm sure, for the April eclipse of 2024. So for this upcoming eclipse, you know, having learned from 2017, we are better prepared with our citizen science experiments, with our regular science, which is always evolving to capture the most we can think of out-of-the-box ideas. My personal desire, which I had even for 2017, but wasn't able to accomplish and I still have it for this particular eclipse and I don't know only time will tell whether I can accomplish is actually traverse the path of totality to see America along that path but also to talk about the eclipse along that route so that's that's a hope and a desire well, that's a hope that I share with you. And I made that journey when we made our previous television show about the 2017 eclipse. And it's pretty amazing to travel across the United States. It's a, it's a life-changing experience. So jumping back to the Australian eclipse, it was a hard trip and so hard that I didn't want to make it. So on reflection, how do you feel that the trip was a worthwhile for this 57 seconds that you experienced? Because it sounds like it was pretty amazing with all the features. From my vantage point, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, it was learning about a country 
I've been to Australia before. I have an Australian sister. I love Australia and it reminded me again of the America when I first came to 43 years ago. And I found and I traveled from East Coast to West Coast, right? It's a long journey. Found the Australians to be genuinely helpful, fun-loving, family-oriented. I met lots of great connections for future collaborations. And Eclipse with the Kite was truly something else that wasn't pre-written in any of my scripts. This is something we hadn't imagined because we have in India we have a festival, a kite festival for a particular god. All our gods and goddesses kind of have festivities associated with them. And so I have flown kites as a child. <laughs> for flying a spectrometer on a kite? No, that wasn't in my thinking. Hey, how big how big was this kite? Like how what's the wingspan? So this was, you know, in many places by mistake I have said twenty one meters. It's actually six point five meters. It's like twenty one feet. Yes. Yeah, twenty one meters, that's a that's a that's a plane. <laughs> you know what happens? You're getting interviewed, right? On the spot. And you have a number in your mind, and you don't know what unit is coming out of your mouth. Well, you know, it, it could have been 21 meters. That's People oh, build stuff that big. Yes. If I were there, and you had a 21-meter kite, I would have wanted to jump on it and go up there myself. Exactly. You know, one of the things I haven't shared about this kite-flying journey is that this actually gave me an opportunity to camp in the back country basically so we were so this is Exmouth and we were directly opposite Learmont um, observatory now Learmont is on the gulf side right and we were on the uh, Indian Ocean side and uh, near Osprey Bay this is the Bangara campground and we were told that because of the eclipse, the traffic is going to be so heavy that if we wanted to be sure that we can make it, then we should spend the night at the campground. That was quite extraordinary too. I mean, Exmouth is already kind of well known for being a dark sky environment. And, you know, so our sleeping arrangement was like many. There were two camps. There was a open truck and then my friend, who is the PI of this experiment also, Shadia and I, we shared the back of a car. And we had the windows rolled down and you could see the night sky like you haven't seen before. And this is the southern sky. So there were so many classes. That's one of my favorite things about eclipses. They take you to interesting places. I've been to several in the southern hemisphere. And you get there and you're usually out in the middle of nowhere where it's dark skies, which is not like American cities. And at night, you see the stars. You see the Milky Way. And it's an amazing thing that I think a lot of people, they they don't even know about. People in the city, they, they really don't know that... They could get out into dark skies and just witness something. I used to call it the pre-high definition entertainment before big TVs. Like that's what people must have gone out and without light pollution and just stared up at that and just wondered what in the world was going on up there. If I may, I, I would like to add a little bit more about my journey because I made this trek 
all the way to Australia, which is re- literally and figuratively halfway across the world. From Exmouth to Boulder is 12 hours. And what I tried to, and, and you know, just going there for the eclipse alone would have been shorter. I spent close to 10 days there. And you're going long ways out there. So what I tried to do, I, I made sure that I make some international collaboration with the business of Eclipse, right? And I went through different spots. I went to Brisbane, where I met with CSIRO, which is stands for Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research. It's, it's kind of the Australian portion of National Science Foundation. And I met with colleagues at Brisbane, by the way, the CSIRO motto is something I love because that's what I think I try to practice. And so their motto is, we solve the greatest challenges through innovative science and technology. I really love that. So I, I met with folks at Brisbane. There, there's a lot of emphasis there on Earth observation and how it supports the Australian mission of Aqua Watch. From there, I traveled to Adelaide to meet with relatively newly formed Australian Space Agency, several of their members. This was in Adelaide. I toured through their headquarters and looked at, you know, something that they have also newly created, Space Discovery Center. Really, why there's a components of it are really innovative. I mean, that's what's very interesting to me. We try to do a lot of the same things together, but every country brings its own innovation that we learn from. That, that it, it was a lot of fun. But what, what was even more fun is visiting the Bureau of Meteorology at the same place in Adelaide, where they have just newly founded a space weather services group, believe it or not, you know. And I I was blown away as I go into this room. You know, they're they're sort of so-called space weather prediction center. And of course, what do I look at? I see near real-time solar dynamic observations, stereo observations, ACE observations, along with you know some of the models that NASA CCMC shares with the world, along with their own models and data incorporated. So you, you can see how space weather is such a global phenomenon and that many of the missions that I have worked on are like integrated into that. And that that was also quite amazing. So I did sort of trying to establish, you know, ideas of collaboration and partnership because I'm there so far away, I might as well utilize my time. And then I also interacted with uh, the media personnel from the consulate of U.S. at Perth Department of Defense, who actually worked quite a lot with the kite flying team to ensure that they have the space, the safety, all of that. Because we were in a place that was really, it wasn't populated at all. We're flying a pretty large kite. We didn't want to be in a populated area. 
and did a lot of sort of media communication. So I think that my entire time in Australia, I kind of learned and devoted what I could in the way of communicating our science to the Australian people. It, it, was, it was amazing. It was tiring. I will not deny that. But it was fulfilling. Well, it sounds like it was a complete success, I would say. It feels that way. The eclipse and the kite being sort of the highlight moment, especially because this was so new, so novel, and expectations were kind of managed, right? Because we didn't want to be too disappointed if we were not successful. But we have come away now with new ways of managing a kite. Perhaps if there is not the same amount of wind we need, there are all those things you think of. This was the first hurdle to see if we can do it. Well, let's see. You had an amazingly interesting kite that was successful. You had the right weather. You had an interesting eclipse that showed features that reminded you of one that was seven and a half, the mother of all eclipses, seven and a half minutes long. You met lots of international partners. You saw how your own work and the work at NASA looking at the sun has propagated out to the world. You made new connections. You were a little tired. It sounds like it went well. Gee, Mark, that was was pretty good. (laughs) I have long COVID. I don't I would just, you know, it's like I, before you win, it's like, well, let's see, no wind. Uh, the kite f- kind of flips around and crashes. The gyros don't work right. Uh, the eclipse is kind of boring. I No, that's crazy. You don't really get a chance to meet anybody. You know, it could have gone that way, but it didn't. Because what you just told me sounds like a stupidly, remarkably good and successful mission. So well done. Well done. That sounds awesome. I'm Again, I don't want to say I'm jealous, but I'm a wee bit jealous. We'll make it up for 2024. I just, I'm I'm jonesing for an eclipse. I realized the other day I haven't seen anything since Chile, which was, I don't even know, four or five years ago. And if you like eclipses or love them as we do, and you've kind of devoted most of your adult life to their study and observation, you do begin to desire seeing the next one. So I I wish I'd gone. I didn't get to go. I'm glad you did. I'm glad it was a success. I have to tell one more story. Oh, please do. So eclipses are sort of um, cycles that are not just for science coincidences either. Uh, I mean, in some ways, they are very personal. And you can make your own personal story out of it. But I can share mine with you. And I say this only because, you know, the 2024 is coming. So I was trained as a cosmologist, astrophysicist, you know, finishing my master's in India. And then when I came to U.S., I started working on Sun-Earth connection with my attention devoted to Skylab observations and eclipse observation from 
another 139 sorrows. And this upcoming eclipse in 2024 is another sorrows 139. Well, I'm sure there's there's nothing to that at all. Just a little numerical uh, accident. Nothing nothing special about that. Uh, not like it's got some significance. I'm joking. I, I totally agree that these things are remarkable and the cycles are incredibly meaningful, particularly to people who spend time observing and doing what we do. Uh, yeah, I, we should talk more about that. We should come back and we should talk about these, these cycles and what they mean to people's lives. Love to. So what are you doing next? What's, what's next on the agenda? What are you doing next week? Next week, I'm going to go back to NASA headquarters and my other home in Maryland, where my husband is, my daughter is. I'm in Boulder, relocating to Boulder, Colorado. And I'll be seeing all my colleagues, making plans, making decisions on what kind of science we do for the 24 eclipse. 2024. It's coming up. It's coming up. It's not long. It's coming up. We should wrap this one up and pick it up another day. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening to episode two of Eclipse Across America. And we'll see you the next time. Cheerio. Bye.